Yo, not gonna lie, this sound gets me hard as a fucking rock. Yo! I'm afraid so, Brad, but isn't it nice? I'm very shallow and empty, and I have no ideas and nothing interesting to say. And I'm exactly the same way. If I had a steak, I would fuck it. For God's sake, Sammy, Emma Ford speaks of a latency period. Hello, it's me, Nicole, and I'm here with Gareth as well, and you are listening to Everybody Wants to Love You. You've gotten more flirty with every <laughs> intro. I feel like four or five more episodes in, you're just going to be, the mic's going to be inside you. Oh it's going to be a wet slapping sound. At least start with me, like, blowing the mic. Why does that have to go inside <laughs> me? Blowing the mic is next episode. <laughs> I have to say, I think I'm just feeling a little bit awkward because now we have to, like, we have, uh, we have to plug, like, certain certain uh, things um yeah you, you plug some certain things with that mic right there oh, Jesus. <laughs> but like it's when i do like the tri-channel videos I, the moment like at the end where we have to suddenly be like oh like and subscribe guys everybody buckles i've seen yeah it's more it's mortifying it's totally especially now that like like and subscribe is like this cliche Meme. <laughs> I, actually i even wrote i wrote a play a few years ago called like and friend a friend i think it was called like and friend anyway, it never got put on I thought, I thought it was. I thought was it was that good. the one about the family vloggers? That's quite prophetic now. Yeah. No, it wasn't prophetic. I mean, it was, I based it on the um, the second jollies. Yeah, but it it quickly became very surreal and strange when I was writing it. So that they it started out about quite a quite close to them, and by the end, it was almost like a hostage situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're actually. Um, something that we I don't want to discuss on the podcast but like they're they're going through a whole thing right now controversy about the family it's finally happening you know the sinister family is being uh, uncovered for the media yeah Um, so this is everybody wants to love you Uh, the latest episode I don't want to say which number because we have a horrible suspicion that we might have to like not release one of the episodes but let's say this is uh, an early episode um and uh, this is a podcast about love sex relationships and all the things that get left unsaid and we just wanted to list all of our socials before we start off okay so um yeah if you want to um reach out to us maybe you have you know you're looking for advice from us or you have a specific topic or anything that you want to talk to us about really you can email us at everybody wants to love pod at gmail.com um we're also well i'm running the instagram for the podcast and the handle is love you pod and uh yeah we have reels there we're doing polls we're doing question boxes and there you'll be able to find the link for our discord also and yeah if you're um looking for somewhere to if you're looking for like a different platform to listen to the podcast on we're on all of them gareth hooked us up with that (laughs) yeah my, my inside track to uh checks notes listing your podcast on itunes sorted that one out phoned up uh, steve jobs and he was like and then he he put me straight on uh, on the platform <laughs> love that guy yeah so uh you know um props to gareth um yeah we're we're everywhere so today's topic is fictional relationships i just pulled this out of my ass last night i was just thinking about it um you know what uh what our favorites are 
what are the most disturbing on screen what are the most realistic um, and I, I'm thinking of movies primarily but they could be books too or whatever um, and why, why do we watch these kinds of films what do we get out of them and how they differ from reality you know we're, we're really fond of comparing porn to real life and there's this whole thing you know make 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 love not porn and porn isn't real and all this stuff but there's also uh the fact that most of the most of the love and sex we see on screen isn't porn, unless we're we're deeply deeply addicted. Um, it's you know it's movies, it's romance movies. Um, and I know I for one grew up like um, watching a ton of movies that had like a relationship as the central plot or whatever, and and I know you did too. Yeah, I um, I we're both cinephiles. I could say <laughs> it's the only file that really we are. Really young films. <laughs> Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I obviously, I mean, who doesn't love movies, but um, I'm particularly drawn to, to romance movies. And I don't know if we want to start saying some, but... Well, the, when I was thinking last night about the um, the worst and best relationships on the screen, mm-hmm. uh, I, I thought immediately about the Before Sunset films. I yeah. guess the Before trilogy. Um, before Sunset, before, um, before Sunrise and Before Midnight. I guess is it before midnight? Is that I the think last it's one? before midnight. Yeah. And and to me that was always the sort of aspirational relationship. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's such a those movies. If you haven't seen them, they're about a couple that they start off. I think they're in their very early twenties, and they meet on a train. And the, the guy played by Ethan Hawke mm-hmm. sees the girl Julie Delphi, and he starts up contrives a conversation with her. They get off the train and decide he has to stay in Vienna. I think it is. Uh, yeah, it's Vienna over overnight because he's got a plane in the morning and he's no money for a hotel and he's like how about we walk around together and hang out and she's up for it because she's this manic pixie dream french uh, lady yeah with no fear of being murdered um <laughs> <laughs> i think she mentions a couple of times that yeah you know i was a little afraid that you would murder me but it didn't yeah. happen i love that about those movies as well is that they're really these kind of like sardonic uh, kind of scrappy kids in a way and the dialogue is so great and i think um uh, Judy Delphi and Ethan Hawke, who are both like great writers um, and creators, like aside from being great actors, um, I think they have like an uncredited writing credit for the first one, and then they got them for the the next two sequels. Yeah, it came out. It came out years later that they really did. Um, together with Richard Linklater, the director, who's kind of famously done Slacker and Boyhood and all these kind of um, very sociological movies. Um, they they worked not just on the script, but they developed the characters together um, and they, they wrote that script. Um, and I, for some contractual reason or something, they were left out of the credits or they were not fully credited. Maybe they were given, you know, a script credit, but not a writing credit. And um, yeah, and it's those movies, obviously, not to go, go through them, but they, they track... They're sort of each one is 10 years later in their relationship and they're but let's just even just stick in with the first one when i was a teenager uh, i think god I, I don't know the movie i think came out in 94 but i didn't see it until later let's say let's say when i was like 19 20 something like that and i just remember just just being bowled over by it because it was it encapsulated to me the perfect dream of love that you would meet someone someone obviously very gorgeous and beautiful and you would connect with them really quickly on this deep level and have this you know deep and meaningful conversation whatever the kids are calling it uh, and, and just this romance and it, it's so the way they talk to each other in that movie all of them is as though they already know each other and i love, I that, love that i love that and you know uh that happens sometimes in life and it's really like rare and beautiful when you when you just start talking to someone and um 
yeah, you just click uh, with someone and it just, they, they capture it so, so well. Yeah, and it, it, it's, uh, you know, later in life you become more cynical and you think, because you can fake that as well. Mm-hmm. And um, it's almost like a, a, a technique to when you're, when you're, we were talking about pulling in a previous episode, but I mean, we'll definitely address that again. But there's a thing that you kind of learn to do as you get older where you can sort of, not fake intimacy is the wrong word, but you, you kind of said it when you were like having a little in-joke with someone. Mm-hmm. So you can, when you meet someone, you can just start to talk to them like you already know them. Yeah. And like 10% of people will just get like seize up, but 90% of people will open up to you. And, uh, but you know, you know, without the cynicism of that in the, in the movie, they really do have this kind of immediate um, superficial connection, but it is beautiful to watch them explore each other's personality. And, and to me, the, the, the joy of that is always that he's pushing forward the whole time, at least in the first movie. Ethan Hawke's character is this kind of brash American. He's coming back from his Euro trip. He's obviously kind of from a wealthy family. And he keeps kind of pushing her because he obviously wants her. And he's just kind of prodding her. And every now and then he'll say something that's too far. And, and you'll see her react kind of with kind of annoyance or whatever and then immediately she'll because she likes him she'll kind of put pull back in and or she'll say something that's too spiritual or kind of ridiculous and he's kind of like a little cynical and his face will squeeze up but then it's that part of it's so real how like when you meet someone you want them to be this person Mm. and I suppose that's the theme of those movies right you it's the difference between the person that we want someone to be they talk about it a lot in the second movie and even more in the third movie that she's very aware that he projected this perfect person onto her and she's like I'm this mess I'm just a complete mess and for him it's like yeah but you're a really cute mess and you're really smart and just that 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 reconciling of like you're not the person I I wanted you to be but but I I still really like you but it's just that tension is so it's so real to me yeah it's it's really deep and I, I I think the first movie is is about uh, and it becomes clear to me now as I get a little bit older is it, it really captures how you interact with someone like love at that age and I think they're probably like 22 21 mm-hmm. like they're, they're really young um, and how you have more uh, experiences like that when you're that age you're more open to to being this kind of like excitable person yeah okay you know and you'll uh, there's something about the, the their energy it's very youthful well you're more open but you're also more valuable and less threatening yeah right because you're more <laughs> you're more attractive you're more um you're more what people wish they had or were you know young and and vivacious and you also don't have money or, or even if you have money it's not you don't have scary money usually and you don't have the weight of authority right mm-hmm. so people can interact with you in a different way they can dismiss you more way more but they can also accept you more. You know, you can meet a group of friends that you've never met before waiting for a train in a foreign country. And, you know, three days later, you're all you know, drinking in, in a different country. And, you know, these, these things can happen in a way. They can happen when you're when you're older, too. But it's there's always a bit more, bit of, bit of wariness when you're older because people are more experienced, more cynical, you know, and you represent something different. Yeah. And I love the those movies. Uh, as a trilogy you know I love what they represent and I love that they kind of track uh, how a relationship can progress now it's a, an example of one relationship it's not like a, this is what will happen to your relationship but there's something in that that's very true with how the characters evolve um, and it's a little bit sad when you mm. when you see them not even in the last movie but in the second one where you realize both of them have gotten a little bit more cynical especially Julie Delphi's character she's been beaten around a little bit more and she's lost a little bit of that like 
she's a little bit more sarcastic um and it, it, there's something sad about it but I love that they keep um there's something still between them the idea that they met on this train and this mm-hmm. little like romantic idea that they're still pursuing um they both can I feel like what's interesting to me something that's interesting to me about both those characters is that he he is like a cynical romantic and she's a romantic cynic like the whole way through so she on the surface seems very dreamy and spacey and whatever but she has this kind of really hard uh dark kind of view of life that i think she gets from her grandmother and it's and he's the opposite he on the surface is this like kind of man of the world cynic or whatever but deep down he's he's the romantic one and they play with that tension as well and and as it goes on they become which i think is very true uh, they become more like themselves mm-hmm. so they they're all of these qualities get in, enhanced so he becomes more kind of um johnny go lightly sort of easygoing and and but but also kind of deeper in his feeling about love and stuff and she becomes more neurotic more crazy mm-hmm. and um more um more cynical but at the same time more fragile it's it's oh god it's those late that last i mean the, we're, we're hopefully we're talking about it without spoiling it and in a way that you can kind of get even if you don't see the movies i haven't seen the movies but that by the last movie it's it, it's really a kind of a tragedy i suppose so moving on um I, the other one that i had in my head was in terms of kind of worst relationships was that movie blue valentine God, yeah. You know that uh, when we were, um, while we still lived in Dublin, we did a big clear out of uh, the apartment we were living in um, and we got a skip and we were doing this whole thing during lockdown. Uh, I found, I think it was two copies of Blue Valentine on DVD in your apartment. So I feel like this uh, this says a lot about you, Gareth Stack. Well, I think one... Yeah, what it says is that I have no memory because I think I had one and then somebody was like, oh, do you want this? And I was like, oh, I love that movie. I'll take that. I just forgot <laughs> I had the original. But do you, can you can you synopsize the, the plot of Blue Valentine just a very slightly... Oh, God. Okay, so it's, um, it's about uh, Ryan Gosling and uh, Michelle Williams. They are a couple from uh, two different like sides of the tracks. Um, I think he, she's kind of like maybe like rich or something and and he's not and um yeah their whole thing is like they they only they're forced into a situation where um they're starting up a relationship that's quite sweet um but then something happens where they have to stay together and then it kind of flashes forward and you see what has happened to their relationship um because they've had to stay with each other out of a certain like obligation um and i think like in common with the first movie there's a sort of a john cassavetes influenced naturalism in in both of these films and blue valentine explores sort of the the some of the worst ways a relationship could go even though the characters still love each other and he he, he, ryan gosling's character is extremely self-destructive and um, michelle williams character is very limited by him but bound to him mm-hmm. and I guess it explores sort of how we how we can actually even though we love somebody that that relationship can 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 make us worse like materially more poor um, emotionally more more damaged um, which is something that is kind of underexplored in films because it's a 
fucking bummer. It really is a bummer. And the thing is, is that like, um, I think it's kind of an example of when you start dating someone, it's like, we'll defy the odds or like we're different. And unfortunately, because of these people's like their personalities, um, how the, you know, the people that, uh, you know, maybe like their parents uh, were like, you know, they're like, I'm going to beat this sort of like track that I feel like I'm on because of my, uh, my history and my, the, you know, how much money I have. And this movie, it starts with them being so optimistic with each other. It's like, we're going to be different. And then at the end, it's like, no, they fell into. They fell into the cliches. And which brings up a really interesting question, right? Because when you meet somebody, your friends and family are going to have an opinion on them. And obviously that can vary based on the, like, if you're, for example, if you're uh, from a, an immigrant from a very traditional culture, they're going to have one set of th- um, one set of opinions. Uh, if you are from a very protective family or you have friends that are sort of see you as this prize jewel or whatever, mm-hmm. they're going to have another set of opinions. And telling the difference between how much you should listen and trust your friends and family's opinion of your partner and how much you should realize that they're limited by their perspective is a really difficult thing because sometimes it, it can protect us from this terrible situation where we end up with someone who's really cruel or damaging or exploitative and other times it can just be a, a stupid judgment based on bigotry and prejudice which prevents us from you know being with someone who would be great for us yeah it's a tricky thing because you know people can beat whatever kind of way that they were brought up um and people should be given a chance to do that but it, you know i think a lot of people don't so like if your grandmother might say oh well he has no money you know he the career that he's going on you know you're never going to have any money and as your uh relationship you know uh evolves and and the hormones kind of go down you're not going to appreciate him anymore and it's just going to get worse like yeah i think you could say that's how it mostly pans out but there are exceptions there are and especially because now we i mean one of the worst parts i think about this time that we live in is that there's there's been for a very long time since the invention of celebrity at least right the possibility however small that you could be, you know, walking along the street and and handpicked to become, you know, a, a chorus girl at the Roxy or, you know, or today, you know, a, you could be streaming your video games and become a, an enormously wealthy and, and, and quote unquote famous person. Or, you, you know, you could be trying on your thrift clothes and uh, on the TikToks and become, you know, enormously wealthy and successful that way. Or, or there, there are... There are more and more routes to that dream life that very few people actually have, but the perce- the perception of it, because we look at social media, is way more profound. So that thing that like that that kid with the neck tattoos, he ain't going nowhere. And you know the next thing, um, you're you're, I'm totally blanking on the same. You're dating Post Malone. That's what I was going. <laughs> you know, um, so so you know, it's in, not that anyone's dating Post Malone uh, who's listening to this podcast mm-hmm. or likely to be. But the thing, the try, point I'm trying to make is that 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 the parental wisdom is even more dubious now because the gap between what was possible 25 years ago and what's possible now in terms of a life that's sustainable is so different, and the pressures. You know, we get we'll do OnlyFans in a future episode, but you know, yeah. the, for, there's there it's are, way more chaotic. It's way more chaotic, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I love watching depressing romantic movies. <laughs> I get a weird kick out of it. I don't know why. Um, I think I mean I watched 
before uh, the before movies and I think I watched Blue Valentine uh, and a number of different movies when I was going through my first breakup um, and for some reason I found it incredibly comforting to you know go from this to like shiny eyed like vision where I'm gonna stay with this person forever and then like it just helped cushion the blow like watching the same thing happen to Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling. Yeah and psychologists love to talk about how um, you know depressing music can be depressogenic making you depressed but the opposite is true too when you if you're really if you're grieving if you're really sad and you for example listen to a really sad song it can console you it can make you feel like you someone else understands and like going listening to a happy song when you feel like that can feel excruciating and same with these movies you know if there's nothing there's nothing better when you're when you're brokenhearted than than to watch someone else a beautiful person in two dimensions on the screen also be brokenhearted yeah and in relation to blue valentine watched them grow kind of like fat and uh <laughs> old they do a pretty <laughs> good job of uh, of making like a 25 year old ryan gosling look like a haggard ass middle-aged dude i know it's brilliant um can i mention one of my favorite Please. movies um that is in the same scope of this but uh way more uh, tacky and closer Oh, that is tacky. It is tacky. Okay, so people don't know. I can't. I don't even know who directed it. Maybe I feel. I feel like it was Mike Nichols for some reason. Um, but Closer is a movie starring uh, a number of celebrities. It came out in like t- two thousand and one, uh, and it has Natalie Portman, Jude Law, Julie Roberts, uh, Clive Owens. I think it's. I think it's just them. Uh, there might be a, another celebrity or two thrown in. I can't really recall. Um, but basically the whole thing is that it's like these two couples and they're they just start cheating on each other with each other. Like it's it's insane. And it kind of plays with these different um with with timelines and stuff. They're not doing it all at once. Um so like it starts off where like Jude Law meets Natalie Portman, who was like the ultimate. Speaking of manic pixie dream girls, she's like this insane <laughs> figure, um, where she's like, "You can't pin me down. I wear bright pink bobbed <laughs> wigs and work in a strip joint. I don't care what you think." Um, and basically, Jude Law cheats on her with Julie Roberts, and then Julie Roberts starts dating Clive Owens, and then. Clive Owens like tries to hook up with Natalie Portman and it's this whole it just sounds like actual actual dating life in Hollywood in the 90s it probably yeah <laughs> um, but what I love about it is that it's just it's it's so grim and the characters are so awful but I think the actual uh dialogue uh, like the actual script is is excellent and it, it's uh it was originally a play yeah it was written by Patrick Marber I, I just checked out on my phone when you were talking because I, I I would thought this but I was yeah I confirmed it he, he also wrote notes on a scandal which is Great. it's one of the best written movies of all time and he actually was a comedian you know he was involved with Chris Morris and he was on the day-to-day in Brass Eye and stuff so he was this kind of like he always played this goofy character Peter O'Hanrahan O'Hanrahan this re- reporter that would lie on camera and then get caught out um, and then he just became this like super successful playwright on the West End and this this play and it is a very stagey movie it is it, and they don't really know how to deal with with that um, but there's something about just watching a movie where it's a bunch of people being terrible people and and cheating and um 
the dialogue in the scenes, but I, I, I think particularly back to uh, Clive Owens uh, has a scene with Julia Roberts where he confronts her about the fact that she's been cheating. And it's so raw. And Clive Owens is an excellent actor. I think he originated, he played Jude Law's role uh, in the in the play. And then he got demoted to this other character. Um, but he, he knocks it out of the park. He's the real star of the movie, to be honest. Um, the rest of them are kind of like silly Hollywood movie stars. Um, but the dialogue and the hurt, like I, I, I just feel the hurt um, like radiating off Clive Owens uh, in this movie. And I don't know, I get a kick out of it. Yeah, yeah, it, it's one of those movies that coming from a play has scenes, you know, really strong scenes that follow that dramatic arc where both characters change, that you know, there's rising tension, there's foreshadowing, um, they, they, they reach a crux in the argument and they switch power and one person's in control and the other person's in These are things that like you learn to do when you're, when you're writing for theatre, but all too often in movies they kind of fall to one side because you're trying to make the plot advance and just think you want things to happen at a certain pace and it has to have different beats. And it's very hard to, to, to also have these scenes which are really compelling, you know, old fashioned um, um, kind of uh, scenes that, 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 that allow all that change and depth and stuff like that. But I think in this movie kind of fails because those scenes do make it drag, but they're also so compelling. And it was the other scene at the end where, where there's this power change between Jude Law and Natalie Portman. Yeah, um, so Natalie Portman's character, she's American, and it, this whole uh, film takes place in London, and they decide, so they reunite. Jude Law is just after leaving Julia Roberts, and, and he reunites with Natalie Portman, who he's fucked over for years, and they're like, well, go to the, to America. Um, and the next you know plane isn't for the next morning or whatever, so they're staying in the airport hotel. And... Um, it's in when they're together in the room after the adrenaline has worn off that Natalie Portman like looks at him and she's like I don't love you anymore and just like just switches like that mm. um and it's chilling and I've, I've had that happen yeah I've had you? exactly that thing happen yeah I was I was um dating someone and um I was very much in love and we were together only only maybe three months something like that and she just kind of turned around and was like yep yeah, don't uh we need to break up. Don't feel anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So like that's that is. Ooh, it cuts to the bone. I know. Could you imagine? And especially, I mean, Jula has it coming, but um. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He he's a prize prick. But yeah. that's That actually brings us on to another thing that I want to talk about, which is um, the differences between film love and romance and sex and stuff in film and in reality. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things you have to do in a film is. In order to not make one character just totally hateable, you have to, for example, you have to have the other character, if not deserve what happens to them, at least provoke it. Because so when you're writing, each character has to sort of make things happen, right? It doesn't, they don't have to achieve their goals. They all have to want stuff and they might totally fail at everything that they want. And that could be funny or tragic, but they have to want stuff and they have to take actions and those actions have to have results, right? But life isn't necessarily like that. So, so when Natalie Portman is kind of callously rejecting him, and then he's desperate at the end, he we ha- he has to kind of deserve it. Otherwise, she would just seem awful, right? Yeah. Um, but but in life, often we we ha- we want something, we take an action, and it has no discernible impact that we can see. It doesn't achieve anything. So we just that can happen again and again and again. And in romance, especially, people can become worse at relationships by having relationships fail. I think everybody knows people like this where they they become sort of like broken by the fact that they've had maybe they got dumped a whole bunch in a row or or maybe they got cheated on a bunch in a row or something like that and where they like 
they feel they have this thing learned helplessness you know this psychological thing where they feel like they can't do anything and that would be a really unwatchable movie but it's really common so what 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 other ways do you think movie romances uh, differ from from what you've experienced or what you think love is really like i mean movies uh, obviously they capture the most compelling parts you know like the highs or like the very lows um you don't really see a lot of the like mundanity of just mm-hmm. being in a relationship um uh, where there's you know you don't really see like i don't know your friends parents you know that kind of like you know marriage where they're just kind of like everything's kind of fine they don't really yeah they they, they 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 touch hands once a once a week but uh yeah exactly. they'll smile not much else going on <laughs> yeah and things get wrapped up either like you know they have the big um you know forgiveness and all this kind of stuff you don't really see a lot of um you know you might have a fight with someone and you uh forgive them or whatever but you don't really see like that lingering like oh no actually i'm actually still like mad at you kind of thing well that neatly connects to the the next movie i was thinking of um politics and cancellation aside um i think one of the one of the most interesting filmmakers about romance and love has always been woody allen and he made a movie in the 90s he was always trying to make a serious movie and his serious movies are so bad um point break is 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 one and he's done a few and i I just none of them none of them worked for me but he made one movie in the 90s called husbands and wives Mm. and it's a perfect mix of serious but also comedic and if he if he's he did like three or four films like that at that time hannah and her sisters and obviously much earlier he um he did Annie Hall, uh, which are all trying to do that, where they're trying to kind of get at something real. But anyway, this one movie is all about that. It's all about resentment in relationships. So you have all these couples that look at their friends' relationships and go, God, I wish I could have that or I wish I could have that person. And they're, they're breaking up with each other. And for example, this one guy and he's like, he, he's just lusting after some young gym trainer and he, you know, he dumps his wife for her. And then, of course, she's dope and he's just dr- driven mad by her and becomes very abusive. And then you have another couple where they, they you know, they, they're the envy of everyone's relationship and, and uh, their, their relationship is, sorry, is the envy of all their friends. And then they, they're, but oh, we're casually getting divorced. And, and it's that, that thing of like the... The, the opposite is always inside the thing, you know, where like, uh, I like this person, but but I don't really, when I get them, I don't want them, all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, I, and it, something that I spot in, in Woody Allen movies that you don't really see in a lot of other uh, movies is the idea that um, you cheat on someone and then you go back to them at the end. That's a really good point. That's something that, that movies, in, in movie world, mm-hmm. uh, infidelity is the end of a relationship and... Um, it's often punished or it's, it's seen as a sort of a character flaw. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's not a character boon in real life, but it's sort of seen as like, ah, the person has been revealed to be, for example, I didn't think of a silly example, the wedding singer. You know, uh, you have uh, Adam Sandler is in love with Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore is dating this douchebag. And the moment in the movie where you're supposed to realize that it's okay that Adam Sandler end their relationship is not... It's actually when... This is this interesting moment that I always think about where... Um, Adam Sandler is, is, goes to a nightclub with the guy. Um, I, I can't remember why, but anyway, he's in the like, contrived situation where he's in the club with his friend's fiance, and this is the 80s, so the guy just assumes, yeah, we're bros or whatever, yeah. and, and he's talking about cheating on her, and Adam Sandler doesn't react well to it. He goes, oh, yeah, but when you're married, the party's over. Uh, and then the guy's like, no, are you kidding me? And he, I don't know, he's got a keys to a condo somewhere. Some There's something he's going to do. 
he, he's yeah he's he's the movie baddie when they have fun with it it's a really fun movie that walks the line between goofy parody and, and sincere romance um but but yeah that thing of like in in woody allen movies very realistically couples go through infidelity or breakups and getting back together and dealing with the dealing with the emotional baggage of the fact that you know one of the people has strayed or both of the people have slept with other people maybe they're friends and they're back together and I've seen that uh, without going into specifics in friends of mine where you know they, they've had breakups and then one person usually one person has gone off and um, hooked up with a bunch of people or dated people even people that they both know and then they get back together and there's this situation where um, you know uh, the partner who didn't do that has to sort of forget that or it's just such a yeah, th- those kinds of complexities are very different in real life and very, yeah. very much more nuanced. And in movie world, like if someone did that, in most cases would be like, this person is consumed with this idea of their their wife with another man and all this kind of stuff, and that you know it couldn't possibly continue. But in in Woody Allen movies or movies that are very similar to to Woody Allen movies, they don't do that. Um, uh, another movie not to keep going with Woody but I, I did it, it leaves a mark uh, with me because I started watching his movies when I was in my teens particularly when I was going through breakups uh, because they're so relationship based so it's just kind of like imprinted in my brain um, but uh, Vicky Cristina Barcelona which doesn't feature Woody Allen um, <laughs> it has uh, Javier Bardem uh, Scarlett Johansson Rebecca Hall and um, some bro that's in other <laughs> movies but uh, th- this is another entanglement movie but the thing is is that Rebecca Hall's character she cheats on her husband um, with Javier Bardem and she's like pines for him and is in love with him the whole time and then at the end of the movie um, she ends up going back to the husband and the husband never finds out and she's just like okay yeah yeah and that's that's another that's another one of those things in, that happens in real life that doesn't happen in movies is that people cheat and their friends know and then they don't tell the partner mm-hmm. and you have this sort of conspiracy which is often I've noticed people kind of getting off on it like like enjoying like especially with girls like they're, they're all kind of laughing about it like you know and it's funny because something that we often talk about the, the, one of the big differences between your group of friends and most friend groups of girls that I've known is that your friends are all like super moral about infidelity yeah. and judgmental but that's not like i've seen the exactly the opposite with friends of um gr- previous girlfriends and different groups of girls that i knew to where like cheating was like a secret that they all kind of kept together and almost gloated about when the part the partner was there i've seen it with lads as well in like the kind of lads who go out and on the pole and stuff like uh yeah, what happens in the club stays in the club kind of thing but it, it's it's yeah, it's a dark thing when people enjoy or even encourage their friend cheating on their partner. I've never seen anyone encourage their friend to cheat on their partner. That's uh, that's not something that I've uh, that I've seen. I wish I could say the same. Yeah, I I have I have been guilty of like knowing someone, not like a good friend of mine, but knowing someone who is who has cheated on their partner, knowing about it and not saying anything about it to the partner. And that's look, that's one of the all time moral quandaries. And I've completely switched my perspective on that you know when, when I was young I was a, like all young people a moralist yeah. and it's something that like the older I get the more it irritates me about like zoomers or whatever that they're so every young person is certain that they know the truth of the world blah 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 or they're at least certain that if they don't know anything the things that they do know are definitely true um, and there's a thing in the culture right now of like being very judgmental around relationships and sex and stuff and it's so tiresome because you 
really like it's when you like I always say that they, I knew most about the world when I was 14 and I've been learning like that I know less and less the older yeah. I get because when I was 14 I was 100% sure that this is how love worked this is how sex worked this is how, um, how what was right and what was wrong and maybe that made me more um, moral person but it didn't make me more ethical person and I we just because you, you haven't experienced anything personally it's all theory yeah it's like the the first relationship thing that we were talking about before the let's never lie to each other ever let's tell each other absolutely everything <laughs> which is that's abusive right that right there yeah. is, is, is it's like gaslighting like if you if you have a personal space that's that's a you've you've cheated on me in some way or you've you've, you've betrayed this pure on and it's I hate to say it but you know, it, the person who demands that is usually um, a, a, a cheater or at least a, a serial liar. Mm. And we've both experienced that where we had a person that we were seeing who was like, very much, we need to share everything. And it turned out that their whole life, or at least a huge amount of their life, was dishonest and, and, and made up. Yeah, I mean, and uh, that comes from, I think, the <laughs> both of our experiences, like from two separate people that were uh you know lying was as easy as drinking a glass of water yeah yeah i mean i guess you could we could sit here and diagnose these people but it doesn't really matter what the term is but they what they had was lyitis you know something else that's interesting about vicky christina barcelona is um that it, it shows the difference between so you have um rebecca hall and she has this kind of three-way dalliance with uh is it scarlett Hansen and javier bardem and that is contrasted against um, the relationship he has with his ex-wife, I think, yeah. uh, played by Penelope Cruz. I think they're, t- are they together in real life, Javier Bardem? Yeah, they are, yeah. which is very cute. Yeah, very cute. Uh, their their relationship is basically Frida Kahlo and her husband. Diego uh, so they, Rivera. Yeah, so they have this incredibly passionate, I mean, she pulls a gun on him, they're, they're screaming at each other. But what, we're, what the movie is telling us, rightly or wrongly, is that their relationship is real. Whereas the relationship that Rebecca Hall and Scarlett Johansson have with this sexy guy who has an island on a plane and is an artist, is, is very much there so, so it, it opens up and he's the ridiculous character and they're very serious and Rebecca Hall's engaged and they're, they're real people and, and it's kind of played for laughs initially but sort of the movie moves to this point where it's sort of it's actually what what he has with Penelope Cruz no matter how dangerous and toxic is more real than anything that they could ever have yeah there's this uh, interesting element to it. So Scarlett Johansson ends up dating Javier Bardem, um, and then Penelope Cruz shows up and oh, antics ensue because she's the crazy ex-wife. Um, but they they lay the foundation that Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz, when they were together, they were so volatile. They they loved each other so deeply, but they could not like live together, be with each other. It would just be you know madness. Uh, and you see a bit of the madness, and it's really fun. Um, but they end up getting into a bit of a, a, a three-way relationship and uh, it seems that Scarlett Johansson is like the antidote to that. And then when Scarlett Johansson is like, she, she's kind of like a sexual tourist, she's this American um, you know, grad student that's like gonna go to Barcelona for the summer and, and have an affair with an artist and then she suddenly, she gets bored of it and she, she breaks up with them. <laughs> uh, I too have had experience with American sexual tourists. Mm. yeah well there, there is that thing i mean I guess americans and um, i keep saying americans because that's my experience but it's obviously it's when americans come to ireland it's kind of like they are the the, the privileged westerner coming to the developing country 
so ridiculous, but yeah. Yeah, because I mean, okay, like technically Ireland is wealthier per person than America, but you have um, a cachet with the films and everything coming from America. And you also have access to newer stuff in terms of the latest things in popular culture. And you're from a different kind of, I just you come in as this kind of sunbeam of momentary excitement. You know, that's how Americans enter a room sometimes. And then, but they also have this thing where they like, they, I'm talking about 300 million people. Okay, I don't want to generalize to our American listeners. But what I mean, there, there is a thread in American culture to where your trip abroad, you know, there's literally those movies, Euro Trip. It's not real. You know, it's like what happens there is like a mad dalliance. And then you go back to your life and woo. And, and to me, that seems insane, right? Every moment of your life is real and the people are real. They're not toys for you to play with. But I've definitely experienced that thing where a couple of times where you meet an American and you have something happen either there or, or in Europe. And then you go to visit each other and back and forth. And it seems like it's real. But to them, it's like a story. You know, they're like having fun for their 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 sort of youthful autobiography or whatever. Mm-hmm. And to you, it's like, oh, this is a person that I care about. But because there is that gap culturally and geographically, and I guess it's probably, I don't want to, again, talk about America because that's my experience. This could happen anywhere. But the, 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 the other person, it, you are not really real to them. And it's yeah. really sad. And it's actually like, it's a really sad uh, breakup scene uh, when she decides to like leave them both. And Penelope Cruz is like genuinely very upset. Now she gets very angry. Yeah. <laughs> She's so good in that movie. Um, uh, so you really feel for the couple, but at the same time, like the Scarlett Johansson's character at the end of the movie, it's kind of, it's contrasted be- between her and her friend, Rebecca Hall. You know, Scarlett Johansson, she had the mad, you know, dalliance uh, in Europe and she's okay with that and she's made peace with it. Whereas Rebecca Hall, it's like, she had the mad dalliance with the Spaniard and it's too crazy and too wild that she's like, no, 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 I could never do this. And then she goes back to her boring wife with a boring wife she goes back to her boring husband who works on wall street there's another movie that keeps coming into my head when we're talking here because um we were talking a little bit earlier about um getting what you want and then not wanting it you know like from in closer there's another movie it's a little bit more obscure it's a 1980s film from the uk called truly madly deeply have you seen that movie no i haven't so truly madly deeply is a film about a woman played by juliette stevenson and it's it's a performance of a lifetime for her it's amazing um, who her boyfriend, her partner, um, Alan Rickman, has died and he is a cellist. And the movie opens kind of with this long period of her mourning and it's kind of comedic, but it's also deeply tragic that she he, he, she was with this guy who is... And it's so funny because Rickman is playing so against type. Like I saw this movie many, many years ago, like late at night. And it's one of those movies that it's very it's a very odd film. And it always stuck with me. And then I, you know, I didn't know who Alan Rickman was. And I went back and watched it again at some point. And I was like, Alan Rickman, what? Because we know him as like, you know, what, Professor Dumble Snape or whatever he is. <laughs> you know, his later roles as this kind of bitchy, harsh English guy, you know, diehard and stuff like that. Yeah, but yeah. in this movie, he's this like young, suave, arty, kind of Latin kind of guy. It's so bizarre. Latin. Yeah, well, he, ha- he, he has a mustache and he's very, you know, he wears flowing clothes and he's very bo- uh, bohemian. Uh, anyway, so they're, she's grieving for him and it's, she grieves so hard that he comes back to her and it's not in the film you know i guess it's i guess you could say that it's portrayed as it's real but you can take it that it's real or it's a fantasy or whatever 
um, and and then the reality of having this person back who's who's dead. I mean, this sounds like absurd, but the film is so deftly written and directed that it really is touching. And we've all had that thing where um, we've all like, okay, well, I, I you know, we're generalizing. Many of us will have had that experience where you you you've broken up with someone and you or 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 they maybe they've passed away and you just your your every part of your body is trying this almost magically to make them come back mm-hmm. like you're not doing anything that would make that happen um but you're sort of in your head or in your your writing or you're you're just you're just wishing all the time maybe you're looking at their picture it's it's like a bizarre thing you're, it's actually that stage of grieving which is really really dangerous because you can get locked into that yeah know. i went i uh, got dumped and um the the person who dumped me uh she was like we can get back together uh when i'm finished college which was like a three-year degree and i remember like setting uh, this is the first week i got broken up with uh i remember setting a timer <laughs> on my fucking like laptop or something and even more mortifyingly i think i messaged her a few times being like only like Ten thousand days to go, but we were that kind of relationship where we were we told each each other everything. We were completely real with each other, even if it showed your total insanity. Oh, uh, that's so sad. It's so sad. And, and I feel so much for you because, like, that's the thing where you're like, you don't, um, you know, you can't accept reality at that point. Exactly, and that's the tragedy of it. And and obviously that person was like, I guess, trying to let you down easy. But actually, that's incredibly cruel mm-hmm. to say. Oh, you know, maybe in the future. Um, and and but but in 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 um in truly madly deeply, she's presented with the ultimate version of that, which is your literally your dead partner mm-hmm. returns. I mean, luckily no one has. Uh, uh, maybe people who they thought their 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 husband was killed in a war and he survived his prisoner war, something like that. I guess it has happened, mm-hmm. and there are movies like that. But in in this film, it's sort of she obviously has to keep the secret because he's not real or he's not he's a ghost or whatever mm-hmm. and and it 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 really it deals with the hard part we have the beautiful opening and then i guess there's that part where you just want to turn the movie off because he starts wrecking her head like yeah because you know? he's this guy that's stuck in her apartment and you can't go anywhere she can't go anywhere with him he's completely he's no one else to talk to but her yeah i realize now i have seen bits of this yeah, <laughs> yeah. so yeah that's that, that's a great thing that that sometimes movies do where they work on an allegorical level and they work on a literal level as well because you know you have this great almost like a greek myth of the returned lover and then you have the reality that this you know we've all been in again where the your person that you're with is too dependent on you too too needy or doesn't have their own life or whatever and then it weighs on you and it, the relationship gets you know very very stressed um but that's i guess there's something that that movies can do is dealing with these things like metaphorically it's like you were saying earlier it's really hard to show the day-to-day it's hard to show boredom it's hard to show you know but you can show moments of it and you can also have a a metaphor that you know like we just went to see that movie um everything everywhere all at once which is an absurdist multiverse fantasy uh, comedy action film but there are moments in it which work on those multiple levels where they're about family they're about the love for a partner that you took for granted they're about um understanding your limitations but how you can actually sort of make those into strengths and all these things and it's very kind of on the it's a very superficial way that they do it but but it works Mm um let's I mean, I'm kind of thinking now, are there any sexy movies 
that we can think of that it depicts sex in an accurate or maybe inaccurate way. I mean, um, one that comes to mind for me um, is the movie Secretary um, with uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Spader. The movie that single-handedly gave you a crush on the least crushable man in Hollywood. Gareth has this thing against James Spader. James Spader is a very sexy man. Now, he's not anymore. He's in like some show where he's like bald and, and old. It, like, oh, yeah, he has that weird show where it's him and William Shatner sitting in chairs smoking cigars while the camera moves around. They have this crazy high-end cinematography as they just smoke and decide law cases or whatever. I've only seen pictures and he wears bowler hats. Like, bowler hats are not it. Like, I, I'm not into a bowler hat moment, but he, <laughs> James Spader and secretary 20 years before. Oh, Jesus, girls. Lads, he's very hot in this movie. So what happens is, is Maggie Gyllenhaal is James Spader's secretary. And um, she's kind of this weird, um, I think she's a virgin as well. Um, she's this like under socialized person who's decided to get a job to kind of like get out of her comfort zone. And James Spader is her mean boss. And they begin to enter this BDSM style relationship. You know, I remember going to see this movie and being so excited for it because I was like, you know, I've always been kind of kinky um, and I was like, wow, finally, you know, there's this kind of kinky movie and then watching it and it, it's the most Fifty Shades bullshit of all time. Oh, it's not no, that no, extreme. Okay. I'm not, not as a movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. It is a fun, cleverly shot character piece, mm-hmm. but it's the way it deals with BDSM and kink is so trivial and so hysterical that I was just so disappointed. And I'm not like judging the movie, I don't watch it or something, but it just it just doesn't get, very few movies get into kink in a, in a meaningful way. And, and their, their level of kink is so entry level and so kind of, so goofy, you know? It's kind of played for laughs a lot of the time in the movie. She does like walk across his office floor with like an apple in her mouth, I think at some point, like a, like a dog. I think that's pretty like the picture of um entry-level bdsm um but i really like it uh and maybe that's what people needed in 2002 yeah that's the other thing i mean when i say entry-level i don't mean oh there's no one getting their like uh, urethra pierced or (laughs) where the where are the suspensions you know where's the uh, breath control i'm not saying that the things that they do aren't extreme enough Mm -hmm. but what i mean is that the way it's portrayed is it's still in that sort of like it's othered you know it's it's very much you're looking at this mad thing oh it's crazy oh look at these weirdos Mm -hmm. rather than you know the reality the gross and beautiful reality of power play in like those kind of BDSM kind of situations yeah I suppose they yeah they don't really go into the dynamics of uh of that relationship they don't really like explain in some kind of way what is it about that that she's like getting off on and he's getting off on to just kind of like doing it but it's still hot and I still like it can you remind me because I haven't seen the movie since it came out Mm -hmm. At the end of the movie, do they, do they do that thing where they're like cured of their kink and they're just like happy and normal, or does it? Are they still weird? No, I don't think they're cured. Um, they get married. They so I think uh, they they come out with their relationship and they 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 get engaged and they're gonna get married and um, then he like jilts her, I think, or he, he dumps her and she, I think he jilts her because she's wearing her wedding dress. Um, and I think she, all I know is that she stays in that wedding dress for, I don't know, like over a week or something. 
stuck to her spot for some reason I don't know why wherever she is she's like in her wedding dress like obviously like pooping and peeing in her dress which is fucked up um (laughs) and then she runs to him at the end and I think they make up I just remember specifically being like she's in that dress for a whole week and she hasn't moved (laughs) there's some nasty and they show her like getting more like funky and kind of like disheveled (laughs) as whatever this amount of time has gone on not a huge leap for Maggie Gyllenhaal probably the most funky and disheveled woman in showbiz yeah well so if you mean like they're cured cured of their kink in that they they got married at the end and have a happy ending then yes no it doesn't doesn't happen um, interesting. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, th- but that brings us back to the difference between film and real life. You know, film, there is that trope in films where someone's getting married or they're about to get married and the wedding is, um, doesn't happen or, or it's called off because the, the lover arrives. In the, I suppose the best example is, um, is in The Graduate where Dustin Hoffman uh, is in love with um, uh, this girl and Billy's had an affair with her mother and she's about to be married off to some appropriate uh, guy from her social class I think yeah. he's from he's a bit poorer or whatever and uh, and he interrupts the wedding and she flees off with him in the romantic moment but you know infamously the last shot of the movie they're sitting in the taxi and they have nothing to say to each other because they don't really know each other or even like each other that much they have a look on their face being like oh fuck what have I done oh I really have to do something now oh no yeah that's another example of a movie where it's like you know um, we're talking about roles she should have gone and married the the guy um, that she was supposed to be getting married instead she runs off with this guy and they're like oh no this was a mistake (laughs) you know it's funny I think that people love to shit on relationships today but I think one of the good parts about living in 2022 at least in the western world um, at least outside of religious America or whatever is that you know mistakes aren't forever you know so um, one of the tropes in old movies is you know I married him and it was the worst mistake in my life. And I think that's very real that people used to make these decisions when they were, you know, 20 or 25 or even 16, that they would, you know, marry someone or often it wasn't a decision because they got pregnant and they would be with them forever uh, or at least for 40 years until times changed and they could get a divorce and whatever. And, you know, for anyone not from Ireland listening to this, you know, Divorce only became legal in Ireland in the late 90s. 1995, I had a friend that I grew up with and she was born the day that divorce was legalized. (laughs) She's the patron saint of divorce. Yeah. (laughs) The good thing, right, so even after that, in Ireland at least, nobody got divorced for ages. I mean, obviously some people who'd been waiting for it did, um, but it didn't become a social norm for years and years and years. But now... I'm not trying to advocate for divorce. I'm just saying that people, we, we love to talk about our relationships don't last. And conservatives especially love to say, you know, oh, traditionally, you know, it takes two parents to raise a child and all these kids growing up with their parents. And there's some truth in that. But the other thing is that fucking traditionally, if you had an abusive husband or you had, you know, a wife that was a, a cruel happy or whatever the version of that is, you were stuck. You were stuck. You were stuck for financial reasons. And, you know, to some extent, men could run away, although at great cost to their career and stuff as well. And w- women couldn't. But either way, people were stuck together. And I feel like now there's you couldn't make the graduate now because she could just get out of the taxi and go back to the wedding and go, OK, everybody, maybe I won't marry this guy, but it's all cool. Or, you know, six yeah. months later, she could go back to her parents and go, I was an idiot. You know, um, th- there is there is more choice. Um, there's also more destruction with drugs and all that shit that wasn't as common especially in america with the opioid epidemic but there's less of a permanence to our bad mistakes especially because of stuff like divorce and and, um, um, abortion and shit like that Mm -hmm. 
Now, are, is there any moments in cinema, uh, like any scenes that are particularly hot to you, <laughs> Gareth Stack? I want to know what turns you on. Trying to pull it back to the sex. I'm sorry. Um, okay, so I thought about it, and the first thing that comes into my head is actually really fucked up. So <laughs> Good, good. So I, I don't know if this is because of... I, I've, I've experienced a lot of infidelity in my life. I've been cheated on a lot. Mm-hmm. I've done a little bit of cheating, not very much, um, but I have been cheated on a lot. And there is a scene in the film Inherent Vice. Oh, uh, yeah. So again, if you haven't seen it, it's a film um, based on the Thomas Pynchon novel um, directed by P.T. Anderson, um, the wonderful director of movies like Magnolia. Um, and it is about uh, a detective in Hollywood in the late 60s, early 70s, um, who is in this kind of surreal noir world where he's trying to solve a crime and his love, his girlfriend, has left him for some millionaire when it's all entangled with the crime and stuff. Uh, she is the classic femme fatale. Um, but there's a scene in that movie where she comes back to him and he's the, the conceit of the movie is he's this stoner and he's he is like binned out of his head the whole movie so what's real and what yeah. isn't real is very it's a really confusing movie can I yeah. just say I remember watching it with you probably I was sitting beside you when you had this sexual awakening I think you've fallen asleep twice watching that movie with me <laughs> it's really fucking long um, I do like I mean it, but it's a P.T. Anderson movie I should have known better yeah well it's not it wasn't an awakening by any means but there um, there's a scene in that movie and it, I should say as well look P.T. Anderson is an incredible director he can make you feel in moments that other, in other films there's there's surreal moments in this film I mean, Joanna Newsom plays is in the movie randomly because uh, she's part of that whole Largo crowd and P.T. Anderson came out of that that whole thing and uh, she plays the kind of the spirit of heroin or something like that it's not quite clear because um, he's a junkie with his ex and um, yeah it's, it's very strange but anyway there's a scene where they reconcile kind of he sort of saved her or she's her, her guy that she was with the millionaire is dead or whatever and they reconcile and she starts like taking off her clothes and climbing on him while talking about fucking this other guy and all of the other people that he he was like she's talking about how much she was attracted to him and how he would have her fuck his friends and how she was just you know handed around or whatever and it is extremely erotic while being incredibly painful at the same time and um joaquin phoenix plays the detective i should have said that earlier i guess and uh he he is viscerally excited and disturbed mm-hmm. and it's just one of the most it's filmed extremely intimately in this kind of wide close-up where you kind of see her looming and climbing him um, but super intimate close-up and it's just Jesus Christ it's hot but it's so fucked interesting I feel like that kind of um, it goes back to what you were saying before about um, the first type of like girl that you were attracted to was this kind of like mean Meanie Bobini. Mean girl. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's a bit of that still still lingering, but maybe only in fantasy. It's a really, I don't know, I don't want to I don't wanna analyze it too much. It goes back to our cooking episode too, our cooking <laughs> conversation. Hopefully that has been released to us, we'll see. But um, yeah, I don't know, it's just, it's just one of those moments that's, it's very different from anything else you've seen. And it, it is a sort of a reversal of the sort of femme fatale and the manic pixie dream girl in one character. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's just such an original thing and, and I guess in the scene it's it's that thing of well we talked about it earlier you know the returned love which is a real thing that people have mm-hmm. um, that isn't really in films very much except in like Woody Allen movies may, maybe or maybe Whit Stillman does it a little bit too but but um, that thing of the, you're back with this person but things have happened 
And it's funny in a way, like, obviously, if you're polyamorous, this isn't going to, you're not going to resonate with this. But there's a thing that you do when you're in a relationship with someone, a monogamous relationship, where everything that happened before the relationship is, unless you're like a very insecure, neurotic person, it's sort of like funny and, and silly. And it's all, you know, oh, they did this and they did that. But if you broke up for a week or they cheated on you and whatever it is, the things that happen are different in that context because they're after you've been intimate. So they're like interrupting your intimacy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, I know in it's only happened a few times where I've like kind of broken off things with someone and then you do the reignite and it's very it's it's harsh, you know, when you get back together. Yeah. 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 There's just certain relief where you've gone back to something that you thought wasn't possible. Um, and there's this kind of fulfillment of like, obviously, if you're going back to where you were, you wanted it to happen, this kind of like fulfillment of a dream that you thought wasn't uh, wasn't going to happen. And there's something in that. There's also a fragility, does it, which was never there before, which is before you always had the illusion that this relationship is a solid rock. Yeah. But now, you know, it's not. So that can make you crazy, but I guess it can also make you appreciate it more. Yeah, it's just that like relief of like, oh my God, okay, I'm back, <laughs> you know? I'm home. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. But if you're in uh, some kind of codependent uh, relationship, it is kind of like you've replaced, you know, uh, your state of being, how you can sit with yourself with that person. So if you get back with that person, it's like you're slotting back into this, like, uh, not healthy but uh, like comfort state for yourself and just like going back into this uh, toxic situation that's a really good point um, I think maybe part of why breakups are so difficult is because if you're like you and me we have we, we share this thing um, a lot of our identity is invested in the relationship probably way too much mm-hmm. and you're not just losing the person but you're losing part of yourself literally you're losing memories that they remember for you because you know, yeah you say that to me uh, a lot yeah well i have a terrible memory and not just because i'm a thousand years old i've, I've just always had a really bad uh, memory mm-hmm. um and, and and there's something that psychologists have found actually that couples that are together for a long time they kind of serve as each other oh darling what was that restaurant we went to you know they yeah. serve as each other's memory um yeah you see so you're losing that but you're also losing you know how like every friend you have you're a different person with them right mm-hmm. so you're losing the person that you are with that person yeah. and the person that you are when you go out in the world alone but knowing that that person is there for you, you're, you're kind of losing that. And that can be a, a lovely thing because you grow. And for me, I know like every, every, the end of every relationship has been really, really sad. And then like a personal renaissance where I start doing stuff I used to do again. And it's getting, so true. Yeah. <laughs> getting fitter and, you know, making more art and stuff. But you also will never be that person again that you were with. So you, your part of you is dying. You're grieving for them, but you're also grieving for yourself. So uh, I guess we'll let's end on a lighter note. So you talked about um, secretary. Are there any other hot moments in cinema that that uh, that tickle your 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 pickle? One of the best movies ever made is also one of the hottest ones. Ooh. It's uh, the The Handmaiden. Oh wow! You think that's one of the best movies ever made? I think it's one of it's definitely one of my favorite movies. I I really like that movie. I re- that's a kind of under underrated movie because I think. Um, um, Parasite came out well it came out a year or two later maybe but Parasite got all of this praise as being this amazing Korean film and so interesting and innovative I think hugely overrated personally but The Handmaiden was is a much less, less well known film is it, is it directed by the same guy who did um, who oh, did Old Boy it yeah. is yeah so he's a very well known director um, but Jesus Christ I think 
it's such an extreme film by Western standards in common with much Korean cinema, both in terms of violence and sexuality, that it sort of was ignored in the West. Yeah, I, I think I remember, I think it came out in like 2014, 2015, maybe. It might even be that long ago. Um, and I think I remember seeing a bit of press about it being this kind of scandalous foreign film. Yeah. You know, every once in yeah. a while you'll hear yeah. like headlines about, oh, this movie, it features a lesbian Korean couple in the yeah. 1800s. Well, there's a, there's a long tradition of what used to be called quote unquote yellow peril you know especially in america where the chinese are coming they're going to defile our beautiful land that we just recently stole from the native americans you know um and yeah there's still there's still that thing where it's like weird foreign violence weird foreign they're doing things with octopuses and in fact there is a thing with an octopus in this film there is yeah they 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 have a play on that um that famous uh, japanese uh painting uh, of the of the woman receiving cunnilingus from an octopus. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole genre now um, online. Uh, we'll we'll doubtless delve into porn in, in rich detail in the future. But there's this <laughs> genre that I have discovered recently. There's a specific channel on on um, Pornhub, I guess, called Hentide, and it is very well made. Um, well, okay, H- high B-movie standard uh, porn of alien tentacles, kind of as you would see, I guess, in a hentai, yeah. um, which I, I don't haven't seen a lot of, but um, the tentacle thing, having sex with, with a girl and endless amounts of fake cum and the eggs being laid inside oh. her and then squirting them out and stuff. I like, the eggs. The eggs. Uh, I got to say, I do, I do find it a bit hot. <laughs> Which part? <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's 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 so odd. The utter madness yeah. uh, of the buckets of of comedy. Yeah, well, they do this thing where they, which is also in the hentai, where the tentacle goes in in the in the pussy, and you know they have a fake thing coming out the mouth, so it looks like it's coming in. Oh, and, and no. obviously, the biology of that makes no sense. But yeah, as know. a woman, I can't watch that because I'm just like, that's not how it works. You have you have to go through the fucking intestines and everything. All right, teach like you know, the biology lesson uh, you know but like you know of course <laughs> of the whole point is that it's ridiculous no, of course it's it's not physically possible you know you know but um that, I, I don't know like i'm not i'm not i'm not saying it's the best thing ever i'm just saying <laughs> that there, anyway can you give us a synopsis of the handmaiden the storyline real oh quick oh god it's it's actually quite complicated because like a three-hour movie and it's it's um there's a bunch of like twists in it um and i'm trying not to i'll try not to spoil it because i i do believe like um everyone should watch this movie um just I'm, not on a plane just, I, made, I made that mistake <laughs> Yeah, that's up there for top ten uh, movies you shouldn't watch on a plane. That's what I wish I had my VR headset for that for that flight. Yeah, I remember watching the R. Kelly documentary on a plane with subtitles on because the plane was so loud, and you just see these subtitles of just like he groomed me and like I was trapped in the closet, the closet, closet. <laughs> I was going to read from the Wikipedia, but I, the Wikipedia is so dense because this is a long movie. It's split into three parts, which I completely forgot. So it's three parts, um, but. Basically, it's about this um, poor uh, girl um, in uh, Japanese-occupied Korea um, that's hired to be a handmaiden for this Japanese heiress. Um, but she's actually involved in this plot to defraud the, 
the Japanese heiress. So she's like waiting on this, uh, on the heiress and, um, you know, giving her baths and dressing her. And they, they begin, I think she, the, the heiress, uh, she starts, uh, who her name is Lady Hideko, I think, um, starts dressing her up in her fine clothes and all this kind of stuff. But the long and the short of it is, is that they begin a sexual relationship. And it's, uh, it it's, maybe because it's a long movie they take their time with it mm. and they really weave this sort of erotic uh i don't know like tension between them and oh yeah it's super hot it's 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 very it's very hot there's a scene that's uh without the tension would be kind of like uh, whatever to watch it but um the lady hideko the the heiress she has like a sharp tooth in her mouth and um the the woman who's hired the handmaiden uh sticks her thumb in uh, lady hideko's mouth and she starts like kneading the she has a little cap on it she does she does yeah it's it's not just her finger um she has a little cap on it and and she starts like uh like kneading it down but it's the like erotic nature of her having (laughs) her finger in her mouth and it's this tension between the two of them and also she's in the bath um (laughs) yeah i want to say like i think that there's a thing that happens especially with these kind of um historic because it is a star set in as you say japanese occupied korea with these historic lesbian films which are quite popular right now where the, the the eroticism is always kind of made gross there's always some element of like um derogation or um the um the abject like some some kind of weird unsexual nastiness to it uh, i haven't seen that film lady on fire is what it's called the, the um portrait of a portrait of a woman of fire. yeah but i would bet money i put down tenure right now and say that there's some kind of grossness in it which sort of makes the sexuality less sexual or at least less the eroticism more kind of base at some point because that's in every single sincere quote-unquote art house lesbian film i've seen but it's not in this film because it is an exploitation film ultimately so they want the sex to actually be erotic mm-hmm. and then you could say for the male gaze or some shit but i'm sitting across from a bisexual woman right now is dribbling talking about this film so it's clearly <laughs> not just for men and, yeah. but they, they don't feel the need to kind of make it like look even disgusting bodies are beautiful they don't you know because they don't have that weird kind of political ugliness thing going on in it. And um, I'm not saying everyone needs to be beautiful, but I'm just saying they don't need to undermine it. So it is just erotic. And then it, there's lots of twists and turns and it's really yeah. interesting as well. But there's something very uh, real about uh, this movie in many different aspects. And I find that in, um, I mean, I, I've only ever really seen uh, like a handful of Korean movies, but I find the dialogue really refreshing. Um, and in The Handmaiden, it's no exception. So like The Handmaiden, uh, the character herself, like she ta- she swears and she talks like brash and really blunt. Um, so it's not a typical like romance movie where all the language is super flowery. Oh, it's not a romance movie at all. <laughs> I find it very romantic. Yeah, but it, it's, I mean, you also have a, a cruel old master who's got a, the, the world's great greatest collection of porn you have a penectomy i think at one point and certainly fingers are chopped off and it's got all of that body horror uh korean uh cinema stuff in it but but like you say it has this very romantic thread to it too it's like seven different movies put into one it's like a historical drama it's a crime caper it's a romance it's an erotic film it's a horror film for sure mm-hmm. um and, and it, it works and there's something it has that it shares with parasite if you did if you haven't seen it 
and you did enjoy Parasite, there's a kind of a way in which the performers physically move, like a dance kind of element to it. Comedy mixed with dance, which I, I presume, I don't know shit all, but presumably comes out of Korean theater, like the way Buto has influenced Japanese film, to where the performers are also trained to, to move in this really expressive way. And there's bits of like, you know, walking on tiptoes or, or hiding as someone searching a room. These little Buster Keaton style moments that are pure cinema, they're all about movement. It's, it's, it's a wonderful film. We should, it's, it's a we great should watch film. it again. I, we only watched it last year, and um, yeah, so that's a big compliment because you don't like to watch. Uh, yeah, I hate rewatching films, but I think because it's so it's so long and there's so much in it that I, it, and it's just it's such a it has such a satisfying there's like multiple twists in this film and it's one it's kind of ridiculous of course on a superficial level but it's very satisfying where it goes with that in an Agatha Christie kind of a way yeah um one last point about that movie as well is that they have the the heiress character Lady Hideko um she uh is being forced to read erotic um, Japanese literature, like ancient erotic stories to these Korean, like, I don't know, businessmen or whatever. Um, uh, they're, they're, I think they're Japanese businessmen, right? Or no? Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. So it's a rich Korean guy who's a war profiteer, basically, mm-hmm. and he's entertaining these Japanese aristocrats who are, like, in occupied Korea. Exactly. And she reads these erotic Japanese uh, tales uh, to the crowd of men. And... Um, I, I find it really interesting because the men are they are creaming their knickers like <laughs> listening to her because she's like she has like the timing down perfectly and she like she does a like um she does a trick where after she's read a particularly like um like sexy moment she'll take a handkerchief out and she'll like dab her brow like she's getting hot and bothered well this is one of the other interesting things about the film is like she has been groomed um in the most horrendously abusive way imaginable to become the sex object for these 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 dirty elf fellas but also for her creepy uncle guy character who is brilliantly portrayed as this deviant sweaty bearded creep yeah and he writes all the time and he has like so he ha- he's the one with the octopus and he um he uses like uh like an ink uh blotting thing and he blots it out on his on his tongue so his tongue is like black with ink <laughs> he's which brilliant there's a lot of um in what is that old boy director's name? Um, uh, Park Chan-wook. Yeah, in his movies, um, there's a lot of stuff with tongues and blackening of the tongue as a metaphor, but the tongue, tongues being removed and all this kind of stuff. Um, and there's also a lot of, you know, it, it, he deals with these broad Greek things like incest, like abuse, but heroically grotesque abuse, um, passion, but passion to the point of destruction that I think is very difficult to do it, there's like a whole t- there's a tone thing right we're talking earlier about Vicky Christina how there's this kind of tone of like this almost mythic relationship contrasted with an ordinary relationship and there's a t- there's a tone in western cinema which is either realist or it's goofy but in in korean cinema uh, they walk the line yeah. so you, so fa- like obviously squid games is huge right now and at the tv show and it has that thing of goofy chaplin-esque moments but also serious sociological commentary and to me that didn't work because it's too broad but in this film it's like a perfect mix of like really kind of silly and really disturbing and really real and i think critics here often can't deal with that because it's so different if you're not used to it like i when i first started watching movies like that i like when i watched old boy for the first time i was like wait wait wait, am i watching a comedy or am i watching like a thriller you know it's like actually 
wrapping your head around the fact that it can be both. Yeah, and it's very... They're genre... Korean films are often genre films. There's also a big tradition in Korean films of very, like, literal, serious, slow, realist cinema. But but this kind of stuff is made for a... They have a huge audience. It's a very populous country, and they love cinema. Films are incredibly successful there. Obviously, they have their, their own language, which is very different to even Japanese or Thai or whatever. So they had to produce its own cinema. Um, but it was fed Hong Kong cinema for a long time, so it has that action element. And so they, they've developed this this tone in their films that is very playful with genre and it's much more cinematically literate than than the current wave of, of Hollywood films. Yeah. And I think that's what people grabbed onto when they watched Parasite. They were like, oh my God, because for a lot of people, that was their first, not to condescend, but like, you know, their first introduction to Korean cinema and that kind of tone. Um, yeah, I think that's why I didn't connect with it so much because I just, I'd just i seen the same things done better in other Korean films. And for me, it was just kind of like, I get what they're doing. And yeah, it's kind of like, a, oh, it's about class. And oh, there's the house and they've designed it for the film. But it just it just seemed paint by numbers. It's complicated, it's sophisticated, I couldn't make it. But it, it just seemed a little bit obvious. But there are there's much more richness. I think if you don't have that, some people, a lot of film critics, if a film has a certain level of violence or sex, they, they, they can't, that's it, they, that, they're out at that point. But if you don't have that, if you're more open to experience, there's a lot there in, you know, in, in Korean and also Japanese uh, horror films and, and quote unquote horror films, that films that have that horrific side to them, uh, like say Audition, um, which is an almost unwatchably horrific film, but also has a lot of depth and a lot of sociological commentary and a lot of sophisticated gender commentary and stuff as well. Yeah, what I think Hollywood gets wrong is that you can't have like a multitude of, of, of things that they want to get uh, out of the, like for the audience, you know, you can't just, you know, uh, normally if you have a film that is very erotic, that's all that it that it is, that is the main goal, but you can have many goals, you can like, you know, all the 90s like sex thrillers, like Basic Instinct, um, to a certain extent, showgirls. <laughs> you know, those, um, what's that French director? Is he French? The one who did showgirls and Basic Instinct. Um, oh, uh, he's, I think he's Dutch, actually. Is it Paul oh, Verhoeven? Dutch. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does it, like, so wrong, even though I love showgirls, where it's just, like, it's all about the titillation. But you can have a bit of both, and The Handmaiden does. Like, it's obviously sexy. Yes, it's there to be a little bit gratuitous. Um, but there's also a great theme in there with the character... Um, reading the erotic stories to the Japanese men um, and to them they're getting off and they're like oh my god you know she's so into it Um, but we the viewer can see the deadness behind her eyes and then you see the real eroticism um, that is true where she's having the affair with the handmaiden Um, yeah I I think Hollywood is getting better in the sense of like I'm thinking of euphoria so when I say Hollywood, I mean, obviously, it's TV is where the real stuff is happening in American, quote-unquote, cinema now. I don't think it would be, be very difficult to argue that, that the stuff that's coming out of Hollywood proper films is anywhere as good as the stuff that's happening on TV. And in uh, Euphoria, especially in the most recent series, is almost art house. You know, there are lengthy... It's A24. Yeah, yeah, it's A24. There, there are lengthy sequences that could be a music video, that could be a romance, that could be a horror film, that could be an action film. Um, you know, there are asides where you have a whole character having a like a mini movie within the the episode like i'm thinking of the the father the closeted father and his memories of being a young young man and the love he lost and it's all done the the scripting the dialogue is 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 pretty shoddy at times but the cinematography and the storytelling through cinematography 
it doesn't just mean where you put the camera in the lens. It means how you build the story through visual moments. And even sound as well is cinematography in a way, sound design. But the way it all comes together in Euphoria is like genre bending and dreamy and hallucinogenic, but also dealing with real themes and real, even though the, the scripts aren't always great, the characters are always very strong. Like that's, that to me is doing kind of the same thing. You know, it's not maybe as sophisticated as a Korean film, but it's definitely... It doesn't get enough credit for how sophisticated it is as a as a thing that blends genre and is an experience. It's not a literal. It's not built around dialogue. It's built around image. It's built around character. It's built around feeling, and the dialogue is kind of filled in. So so you can kind of slate it on the. If you look at the the ostensible storyline, it's whatever. Who cares? Yeah. But if you really watch it, that's not what's there. That's another uh, like TV show example of media um, where people don't really know how to react to the, the nudity and they assume that it's uh, exploitative in a way, even though there's, you know, they have uh, intimacy coordinators, of course. Oh, my God, I'm, I'm sure they have intimacy, intimacy coordinators coming out of their arse on Euphoria. It's the one thing that intimacy coordinators are not meant to do. You know? yeah. like, lesson one, <laughs> don't come out of someone's arse. <laughs> Um, but people uh, have this in their head and I, I hope it's just like teenagers that don't really know, um, you know, that are assuming because let's be real, Sydney Sweeney has her tits out every, every, you know, five minutes on Euphoria that she's not enjoying having her baps out or, you know, that she hasn't like, you know, she can have a conversation with the director which she has talked about how she's fine with it and he's been so respectful for her but maybe she wants to but people uh, have this in their head that because there's nudity there must be some kind of seediness around it yeah uh, it's just it, again we look I was talking about judgmental youths of today or whatever it really pisses me off that people who have like begun their sexual careers or barely begun them are sitting there in judgment of everything and analyzing everything to death and oftentimes not even having sex and they're in such a place of trauma with their own sexuality and that that everything is perceived as traumatic and yes it is exploitative and titillating but that's okay it's okay because if someone allows themselves and even desires their own exploitation that's okay you know, if they're being forced into something, whether it's an actress or a porn actor or uh, or a person in daily life, terrible, right? But a lot of the eroticism in in real life is about power dynamics and about giving yourself over to be used by someone or using someone, you know, saying horrible things to them, having them say horrible things to you, everybody enjoying it. And of course, we, you know, consent is so important and all that kind of stuff. But like at some point, you need to put Tumblr down. You know, you need to turn off TikTok. You need to stop calling everything a trope and talking about the main character of the internet and just enjoy the fucking. Enjoy the fucking, guys. Enjoy the, enjoy the fucking. Enjoy uh, Sydney Sweeney's baps and enjoy um, the schlong of... Uh, the, what's the character's dad who... I don't know the character's dad's name. Oh God, I don't know. Uh, anyway, there's plenty of Nate's dad's dick. Nate's dad's dick. And you know, you know, you have the, you have your uh, exploitation eye candy in, in Sydney Sweeney, and and then you have Nate, who's who is you know this monster, but he is very much a Mills and Boone monster. You know, he's very much you know the the billionaire lover and the and the and the trifling secretary or whatever. He he is this absurdly beautiful, tall thin dark haired you know he he is that kind of destructive man that, that women are often drawn to at least in fiction mm-hmm. 
I don't find him attractive at all and I would like uh, at least for me uh, I think him being in the show he starts off it's like oh he's so hot but he, his actions it just completely kills any desire that I would hope for most people but you know you never know yeah I mean he I guess he's the ultimate fuckboy he's he truly the the sort of the the feminist um version of the the worst kind of uh, attractive monstrous exploiter um, but that's a cool character. I love that about that, that the show goes, I mean, it's absurd. Like they're in Holly, they're, that classic thing, they're in high school, but they all now look 30. Um, <laughs> and uh, and um, the, the actions that happen in the show are so extreme. And there's so many things happening, uh, you know, and everybody's fucking everybody and everybody's secretly in love with everybody and there's drugs out the ear and everything. But in that way that myths allow us to talk about reality, they do get to address stuff like the opioid epidemic, like sexual exploitation, like the way that young trans women are uh, used or use themselves to feel more feminine, like really difficult issues. And, you know, I can just hear the people going, and it should be left to those communities to write. Fuck that. We can, artists can make stuff, art about everything. That's the whole point of art. Yeah, but on that note, like Hunter Schaefer, who who plays Jules, um, the trans girl character in that, I mean, she does help write that character. Mm-hmm. And in, when they did that little, like, two episode, like, in between seasons thing. Albeit the weakest episodes. Super weak. Um, but she, I think she wrote that episode. Mm-hmm. Um so absolutely they're 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 it's insensitivity done sensitively and it's exploitation done in a, in a modern ironic way with without but what i like about euphoria is it doesn't doesn't it doesn't undermine its own sexiness like they don't feel the need which so many things do to like this is a very sexual moment we're going to make it silly we're going to make it horrific we're going to we're going to pull you away from it because we are uncomfortable with feeling like we might be being exploitative so we're going to make that to me that's like that's the difference between something that's erotic and something that's chintzy and gross like a like an old uh, british end of pier like creepy uh movie or, or sitcom or something eroticism like it's not afraid to be erotic and and, and I, I think that's great it's great to have that and it's great to 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 show people enjoying their sexuality and to show the destruction that can come from that as well which is why showgirls is the greatest movie of all time and on that bombshell <laughs> let's uh, let's wind our way down um, if you want to reach out to us we would love to hear from you everybody wants to love pod at gmail.com we mentioned at the head of the show that we, we're doing this a few episodes ahead we did that just so we would we wouldn't make an episode release it and then never do it again we wanted to to keep keep it going uh, but it means that we're behind right we don't know when this is being released it'll be like five six weeks after um, we made it right so so we'll be it'll be a long while before we start including any kind of contributions but please do give us some because we'd love to answer problems in the future and things yeah like let us be your your agony aunt and uncle with the floggers I'll bring the agony you bring your aunt and your uncle <laughs> <laughs> I was imagining us as like BDSM Ants. agony uh, auntie and uncle with can, the can we be like little little tiny like uh, ants like from the movie ants <laughs> starring Woody Allen <laughs> We like Woody Allen, okay? What's the, what's the, you know, he's a sexy man. Um, oh, man. Uh, Gareth once got mistaken for Woody Allen in a museum in the Met in I had, New York. And let's, just, just, let's just give some context. This is 10 years ago um, when I was 
more than 50 years younger than Woody <laughs> Allen. It'd be way worse now because he's like very much an old man. But like He was pretty fucking old back then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's old. But uh, yeah, security guard came up to me and he's like, oh, Mr. Allen, there's me and my, my wife. I was actually probably dressed exactly like I am right now, wearing like a wife beater and a pair of uh, chinos. And somehow uh, me... Uh, 32 year old 32 year old Gareth uh, was mistaken for 76 year old Woody Allen and he said oh well this is Mr. Allen's favorite painting and if you're if you're interested um, the painting is in it's in uh, uh, I think it's in the in MoMA in MoMA sorry I, I was gonna say the Met as well uh, it's in MoMA and it's uh, I think it's called Autumn Rhythm it's a really beautiful um, the Jackson Pollock Jackson Pollock yeah mono color Jackson Pollock painting um, yeah and uh, yeah yeah, so so you know, of course, I have to like his movies because you know, I basically am him. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> oh, Sonny. <laughs> oh, stop. Okay, before we get totally cancelled, um, you can also look at our Instagram. It's Love You Pod. We have polls, we have questions, we have reels. I am making reels that are, frankly like hilarious i'm i'm loving them they're really good i made one and i was like this is too much work and it's not funny and then nicole made three and they're all much better than the one i made um yeah so uh check them out and uh yeah uh keep watching got keep watching keep watching keep, keep watching. staring into space <laughs> this is how you should listen to this podcast you should go into a darkened room stare into no clothes baby oil stare sit in a comfortable lazy boy <laughs> Stare into space until the images come to you. <laughs> Enjoy. And remember, everybody wants to love you. And you know, there is something very important that we need to do as soon as possible. What's that? Well, I ask a psychopath, I get that kind of an answer.